Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So today we're going to be looking at love and the role that it plays in giving. It's the first line there in your notes, the role that it plays in giving. Now, I just, I kind of sense that whenever a, a preacher stands up and says the word giving, everyone goes, oh, and hold on to your wallet, right? Like, you know, they're talking about money. That is not what we're talking about tonight. So just kind of let that relax, let it go, kind of let that tension unwind. And because one of the reasons that we think of money when we're talking about this word giving is because of the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. This is done great harm to our churches and to the church in America and our culture because, um, well, number one, you don't prosper and it's not the gospel. So it's kind of an oxymoron when it goes together, right? It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, we see its effects in our culture and in our churches when people teach and preach and follow this kind of unbiblical version of Scripture. And so I found one more proof that that happens this week. And uh, as I was getting ready for the message, I said, you know what, I'm just going to try something real quick. So I flipped open my, my, my laptop right there and I opened up Google and in a search bar, I typed three words, scriptures on giving and I hit enter. And I was thoroughly entertained by what came up because every single uh, search result on that main page came back um, for, for some kind of teaching on money. It was like scriptures pastors can use to teach on money or you're taking an offering this Sunday, use this scripture. And I was like, man, what have we done to the gospel, right? And so I clicked through all these pages and I had to go through several dozen of these search results before I was even able to get to find uh, just a single difference on what giving might entail. See, I know we're, we're living in the most prosperous nation in human history, but I mean, and it's going to have some kind of impact on us as believers, and we're trying to undo that, right, and make sure that the gospel has more impact in the culture. But I mean, everyone, I mean, dozens of these things came back before I found an alternate um, idea of what scripture or could be talking about when it talks about giving. So the idea of Christian giving applies to things other than money. It's the next line there in your notes. The idea of Christian giving applies to things other than money. Now, I will teach on the biblical principles of money and stewardship and giving sometime in the future. But tonight, I want to keep the focus on our heart and growing in love. So we're going to take a, two, uh, take a look at two more characteristics that kind of point to giving um, from 1 Corinthians 13 as we have for this entire series. And so number one there in your notes is this. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. That word in the original original language of the Bible means actually not to just be envious, but to, to be heated or boil with envy, hatred, or anger. Be heated or boil with envy, hatred, or anger. Now, um, I am a person who cannot turn my mind off. I'm a person who, uh, I don't know if you're like this, and maybe you're not, or maybe you know somebody like this, and if you don't, 
hello, my name is Matt. I just introduced you. Now you do. You know somebody um, who, I, if I'm thinking about work or if I'm thinking about ministry or I'm thinking about whatever it is and I've got my mind set on it, I cannot turn this thing off sometimes. It drives me nuts uh, and I'm trying to figure out ways to turn it off. And so, so it would just wear me out constantly. And so a bunch of people, including my wife, said, hey, why don't you find a hobby? Because your, your mind is so preoccupied with all the stuff you have to do all the time. Why don't you find a couple hobbies to do? And so I did. So a couple of years ago, I started cooking. Now, um, I'm far from some gourmet chef, but it's something that I kind of like and kind of put the ingredients together. And this has really made my wife happy and upset at the same time. And let me explain why. Because she's happy that I'm cooking. She's happy. She's like, oh my goodness, you're taking on some of this, the load of cooking because she's cooked the majority of our marriage, you know? And then she's also upset that I've waited two decades into our marriage to kind of start cooking. And she would have rathered me pick this up, you know, maybe like year two, 18 months would probably be better, right, of our marriage. So I can be cooking this whole time. But so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a novice, you know, I'm, I'm just learning all these things. I don't care how the chemical reaction stuff works. I just care what ingredients go together, how long do I cook it so it comes out good. I want to eat, right? So, um, so one of the things that I, I, I found online was this guy who teaches, you know, how to make certain recipes and certain dishes. And I love this guy's cooking. And so he put up a recipe on potato soup. And I thought, man, I love soup. I'm a potato guy, a meat potatoes guy. That is my jam. And so on the, on, the, um, on the instructions, on the recipe, he said to take all of the liquid ingredients, put them in a pot, and bring them to a boil. And once you did that, I had to stay with it and make sure it didn't just boil over. But when I did that and got it to a boil, I turned the heat down to low, covered that up, and then let it sit there so that all of the flavors and the ingredients could start to seep in the entire in the entire bowl or the entire pot of soup. When I saw the definition of this word um, to be heated or boil with envy, hatred, or anger, I immediately thought about this. I immediately thought about this new kind of hobby that I'm taking on with cooking because the longer we sit with the heat of jealousy, anger, and envy, the hotter our emotions will become. The longer we sit with the heat of jealousy, anger, and envy, the hotter our emotions become. It may seem like a little thing at first, just a little bit of envy, just a little bit of anger, just a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of resentment when you see somebody out there who's doing something or has something or is or is participating in something that you really wanted to do. And you can kind of look away from it for a while, but if you don't deal with that at its root, if you don't pull it up, what's going to happen is the heat on that is going to get turned up. The longer that you start to think about it, the more you start to churn on it internally, you're heating that up, and it's going to cause your emotions to boil over. You know, many people deal with envy in their own strength, by covering it up and just allowing it to simmer. I'm not going to be openly as mad or frustrated at, that that person has the thing that I've been after or that that jealousy is just burning in me. I'm not going to just let it overrun me, but I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm just going to put it on the back burner and let it simmer. And what I learned was simmering is a low boil. 
The whole process of simmering happens so that the flavors can saturate the entire thing that you're cooking, just like I was doing with my potato soup. All of the, the things that I'd put in there, the onions and the, and the cream and all of the, the, the broth and everything that went in that recipe, it started to sit. And the longer it sit, the more those flavors expanded out into every part of the soup. And the longer we allow envy to simmer in us, the more it's going to permeate everything we think about. It's going to spread throughout our entire life. If we never uproot envy from our heart, we're going to keep that simmer going. It's going to continue to boil and eventually it is going to come out of our mouth and our actions onto someone. <clears throat> See, envy at first, you would think it appears to be focused on others. It's next line there in your notes. Envy appears to be focused on others, but ultimately focused on ourselves. See, when we look at when we think about envy, somebody has something that we want, or they had an opportunity that we, we really thought we deserved, and this entitlement raises up us up in us, and this resentment starts to raise up in us, and you can you can be fooled into thinking that it's about the other person, but ultimately it's about our heart. That's why the scripture is very clear that love does not envy. What does envy sound like? I want their car. Not one like it, or that's nice. I like to have one like that one day. No, no, no. I want theirs. They have something. They beat me to the punch. They got the newest thing before I did. How dare they step in there? I wanted that I wanted that house. I wanted that family. I wanted that spouse. I wanted that voice or those looks. I wanted that position. I wanted the recognition. I am the one who worked harder. I have more degrees or I'm smarter than them or I have a better uh, a set of skills to do the job than somebody else does. Why did they get it? And that just begins to churn and boil inside of us until ultimately it is destroying ourself. I want you to hear me very clearly on this next thing we say. Envy bulldozes the substance of our own blessings and uses the rubble to start an unholy fire of dissatisfaction. Envy bulldozes the substance of our own blessings and uses the rubble to start an unholy fire of dissatisfaction. When we allow envy and we allow this to grow in us and to boil and simmer inside of us long term, what we're doing is we're looking at our own blessings, we're looking at the things that God has given us and we're spitting on them and wanting them to be destroyed and in the midst of that ignorance and ignoring all of that stuff, this fire of dissatisfaction begins to grow in us and begins to cause us to act out on the people that are closest to us. I find it very ironic that I've never heard anybody in our culture really address envy. We address a lot of things. We address, uh, address injustice. We address, address poverty. We address anger. We address haters and all that kind of stuff. But I don't remember 
even when we were, I was getting ready for the message, I tried to think back at some time in my life where I heard anyone who was outside of the church, outside of this scripture reference, who was not living for God in the world ever address the subject of envy. And I think that's because many times people want to encourage us to use envy as fuel to better ourselves and chase someone. They want to paint a picture of that person has something that you should have had. That person has something that you deserve. That person has something that, that, is, that, that you have had your eye on for so long and they got it before you. And, and don't be a hater, right? That's a big, the, the big thing. Don't be, a, don't be hating, bro. Don't be, don't be mad. You mad, bro? You know, like, don't be mad. <clears throat> but use that as some kind of fuel to the fire so that you go out there and get that stuff and so no one beats you again. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about people who want to rise out of poverty or provide for their family or eliminate financial stress. These are all good things. Yeah, I want to have more so I can give more to people. These are very, very godly and scriptural things. But if our motivation is envy, our endeavor is selfish. If our motivation is envy, our endeavor is selfish. James 3, 13-18 helps address this fact. <clears throat> Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. When I read that scripture, I kind of pushed back from the table for a second and I thought, man, that is a big statement, right? Where you find envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder in every evil practice. And I began to look back and think back in my own life for things that I've experienced, people who have maybe done some things wrong or hurt me or treated me incorrectly or I watched some injustice happen or I watched some, some chaos or disorder break out or I seen some people practice evil or wickedness throughout their life. And as I began to sit there and recall these instances in my mind, it dawned on me that I had no idea that envy and selfish ambition played a major role in every one of those scenarios. So we spend a lot of time here talking about how this, this envy causes us to go, go, you know, go work for something because I don't want to be beat again. I don't want to be you know, beat out for the thing that somebody else has that I wanted. But it's important to remember something that you not just the general body of Christ, but you as a follower of Jesus are born with certain gifts, talents, and characteristics that are unique to you. When we look at people and we are envious of their ability, their talent, their skill, the thing that they possess naturally, and we discount what we have, we are in essence looking at God and saying, I don't like how you made me. 
I want them. I want that. And God had no intention of carbon copying you to be like someone else. You've got a role to play in the body of Christ. You were designed to be in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. That is first. And then use those God-given abilities as the mechanism to give, give to others from the new heart of love that grows inside of you. So you give your life to Christ. You believe in Him. You, God reconciles you. You are saved and justified at that moment. And then as you then go down the list, you realize that there are gifts and things and abilities and skill sets in you. And the reason that they're in you is not so you can stand up and be a look how skilled I am. Those are the mechanisms, the vehicles that we are supposed to use to distribute this new heart of love that is growing inside of us as Christians. Those gifts are not to be discounted or compared to someone else. We are supposed to use them where God places us to deliver and give to others. From a heart that overflows with love. If we're consumed with getting what others have, we will be blinded to ways that we can give to others. There is a big difference between being motivated by envy and generosity. There's a big difference between being motivated by envy and generosity. Both people, if you're, if you're envious, you could be someone who's working hard to try to catch up and, 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 and get up on the same level as somebody else that you envy. Or if you're generous, you could be working hard so that you can have more to distribute and give to others. And the scripture is, is, is filled with verses about us needing to work hard and everything that we do and put our hands to, to do it as unto the Lord. But let's look at one in particular, Ephesians 4, 28. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then keep it all to yourself. Improve your standard of living. Hoard it all so no one else has anything else. No. Then give generously to others in need. I read uh, Matthew Henry's biblical commentary on this idea of envy that we read earlier in in James. And he said something that was just so brilliant. I don't think I could do it any better. So I'm just going to read it here to you about how envy should apply to us as believers. If we love our neighbor, we shall be so far from from, from envying his welfare or being displeased with it that we shall share in it and rejoice at it. His bliss and sanctification will be an addition to ours instead of impairing or lessening it. This is the proper effect of kindness and benevolence. Envy is the effect of ill will. The prosperity of those to whom we wish well can never grieve us. And the mind which is bent on doing good can never do good if it shows ill towards anyone. Man, when I read that, there's an encouragement in me, a thing in me that says, I need to reject envy, right? 
I don't want to be like that. And there can be an, a, a tendency in us to try from our own self, from our own, our own selfish effort <clears throat> to go, the Bible says I'm not supposed to do this, I'm not going to do this, and try to make ourselves through our own personal discipline, not be envious anymore. But when we reject, truly reject envy, and not try to wrestle with it in our own strength, but when we pull that up by the root, and when we reject envy, it is evidence that a heart transplant has occurred in us. A, when, I, when I say heart transplant, I mean that there is a new heart, a new person, a, a life that is now inside of you when you become a believer in Christ that was not there before. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And when that life is built up inside of you and that heart of love it becomes a reality in you as a believer things begin to flow from that nature and you begin to reject envy because of the power of the Holy Spirit that is growing inside of you. If we're always focused on getting in ourselves, we cannot give the way we're supposed to because love gives. Number two, <clears throat> love is not rude. Love is not rude. This word rude in the original language means not fitting or inappropriate behavior. Not fitting or inappropriate behavior. So I watched an interview this week online with a young lady who was uh, commenting on a new song that was released, a new music video that was released um, a couple weeks ago, and it was very raunchy. It was very hyper, overly sexualized. And if you live here in America and are watching this, you might go, which one? Because there's so many of them, right? Like it's, it seems like that's, that's kind of the standard nowadays, right, for, for, for new releases of, the, of these songs. But, um, and I'm not picking on this particular artist who released it. You know, it's, it's widespread throughout the music industry, guys, girls, doesn't matter. Um, but this just happens to be the one I saw the interview on this week. And the young woman being interviewed thanked the recording artist for creating this type of music video and song she thanked her and here's what she said i feel like i want to thank her because when i saw the video it was freeing for me when i heard her say that the interview went on for at least 30 seconds or a minute more i just tuned out because it just grabbed me that she thought it was freeing to watch somebody objectify the opposite sex and themselves in front of a camera for likes and money. As I was sitting there thinking about why in the world do we consider, would we consider this freedom, I just felt like the Holy Spirit just kind of gently nudged me and reminded me that the further we pull away from God, the more our idea of decency erodes. The further we pull away from God, the more our idea of decency erodes. I realized that there's a strong possibility that this young woman who was being interviewed had been taught 
There's some, there's some guidelines here. There's some, there's some uh, bookends that we're not supposed to cross when it comes to decency and morality. And I realize that if you feel like those are restrictions for you, and you're desperately trying to get on the outside of those guidelines that could have been put there by a pastor or a church or a, or a youth group or maybe even just culture in general. If these guidelines have been put in place and you feel like they have been restricting from what you really want to do and someone just says, forget the guidelines, man, everything goes, I can understand why it would seem like freedom. But to the lost, freedom can seem like bondage. And bondage can seem like freedom. Ephesians 4.29, Paul warns us as believers in Christ about what we do. About this inappropriate behavior. And he gets very specific on a, on a specific type of behavior. Let's, just, let's read it together. Ephesians 4.29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen notice the contradiction that it paints between unwholesome talk on one end and talk that builds others up and benefits them on the other our job as Christ followers is to use our mouths to give encouragement and build others up as they need it. <clears throat> James 1, 26-27 If you claim to be religious, and that word religious means fear God. If you claim to be religious and fear God, don't and but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion or your external religious worship is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the widows and the orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Most times when we think about this scripture, we, we stop right before the last phrase. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the widows and orphans and all that stuff. We've got to take care of the people in need. And yes, that's true, but that is not the complete list. And refusing to let the world corrupt you. Notice here that there is a choice implied. Don't let, don't allow the world to corrupt you, meaning there is an option that it can and an option for you to resist it so it doesn't. Refusing to let the world corrupt you is a big statement. And as I began to think about it, I'm like, well, what does that really mean? Like, I can kind of guess a little bit, but I, mean, I did some research and found a, a, a man named E.M. Zur who wrote a biblical commentary in the 1850s. And he gave a great definition of this word on, and this statement when he researched it, and it's this. Refusing to let the world corrupt you means to be free from the vices commonly practiced by mankind. I've heard it said before and, and can agree that man, men and women of different generations, of different ages, of different ethnicities, of different backgrounds, of different whatever, they have vices 
They have vices that they can give into. But here, James is telling us, do not allow the world to corrupt you. Be free from the vices that are commonly practiced by mankind. How do we do that? There's several ways we can do that by, by prayer and scripture reading and making sure that we're, we're being very careful of the things that we allow to entertain us and where we spend our time and focus. But one thing that we must do is be careful what we allow in our hearts and minds. What we deposit in our hearts will be withdrawn through our mouth. <laughs> What we deposit in our hearts will be withdrawn through our mouth. What comes in here will eventually come out here and come out here. If love does not act inappropriately, then love is placing a safeguard on our hearts so that we're not acting inappropriately, but what we're doing is we're giving life, we're giving encouragement, we're giving building up words to other people. This is another way that we give from a heart of love. James 3, 7-12 says this, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, you cannot draw fresh water from a salty spring. He's giving us a very clear indication here that we got to be careful how we talk about people who God created, the image bearers of God. We got to be careful how we talk about women, men. We've got to be talk- careful how we talk about men, ladies. We've got to be careful how we talk about our enemies, our elders, our parents, our children. So let me pause right there for a second. If you're a parent, um, there is a, a great quote that I heard from Sheila Walsh who is a Christian speaker, and she used to run a uh, host a television program way back in the old days, the 90s. <clears throat> um, uh, and she made this statement at a conference I heard her speak at several years ago, and she said this, children are the greatest recorders of information, but the worst interpreters of it. Children are the greatest recorders of information, but the worst interpreters of it. What does this mean? If you say something to your children, even if you're joking, even in jest, there is no way to determine how that unexperienced blank canvas mind is hearing what you're saying. How come you can't be like your sister? How come you can't act more like your brother? How come you don't act like your friend over there, like that guy's son? 
How come you don't act like their daughter? What's the matter with you? You don't follow the rules like all of these people. Why don't you act like them? And if we're not careful, we can example, even if we're kind of joking a little bit, we can crush and then turn their heart towards a posture of envy. We can example to them that it's okay to look and compare at other people and you are not as good as them and you're not acting like him or her, even if it's siblings in your own family. And like, surely they know that I'm just messing around. There's a possibility they don't. We've got to be careful with our words or we can actually tell them indirectly that envy is a proper route to go. We got to be careful how we talk about our friends, co-workers, those we lead. If you're in a position of management or leadership in any type of business or company or organization, those we hire, those who serve. And when I say serve, I mean people who are working in occupations and careers that are whose whole job is to serve us. These are people who can't do anything for us, a waitress or a waiter who brings us our food. We have to be very careful that we don't talk about them or to them or treat them in a way that is inappropriate. Why? Because it's a revelation that there's a heart, there's a gap in our heart, a portion of our heart that has not been submitted to Christ. If we find ourselves boiling with envy or acting inappropriately, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us the area of our heart that needs to change. How many struggles in our culture would, we be, would be solved if we showed each other just those characteristics in 1 Corinthians 13? pretty clear in a two or three verse span 15 characteristics love is patient love is kind and we've been going through them this entire series what would our culture look like if everyone exampled those characteristics to each other shoot throw out all 15 what would our culture look like if we just started with these two removing envy and rudeness inappropriate talk and behavior how many divorces would have been stopped How many runaway children would have stayed home? What would happen to the robbery rate? People who embezzle money. Thieves. If we had a button that could immediately wipe out any rude, um, envious, or um, inappropriate talk, actions, or comments online... If we push the button, how much of that would be wiped out in an instant? The vast majority of it, I'm sure. When we remove selfish envy, we're able to generously give love to others. When we remote when we remove inappropriate behavior and talk, we can use our words to give encouragement to others. When we operate in love, we live prepared to give others the good news of the gospel. My friends, love gives. <clears throat> the third and final point tonight 
is giving everything. Giving everything. Are you saying that, that we need to run to the bank in the morning and empty out all my retirement accounts and my savings and all that kind of stuff and then write in a big old lump check and write it and drop it off the church tomorrow? No. That would probably be foolish. But that is another reason we need to separate the idea of giving from money in the church is to open up our hearts to find other ways to give. There can be instances where money is the appropriate thing to give. There can be. But there are other times when throwing money at a situation is not actually showing love. Does someone close to us need help, need the truth of the gospel, need some real, hands-on, scriptural, Christian living in their life? And are we tempted at that moment to be like, bro, you've been dealing with this for so long. Just here's 50 bucks. Can you just go and do something about it? There is a time where throwing money at something because it's annoying is not acting in love. So what are some other ways that we can give? I'm going to, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would show you different ways, your own self, that you can find um, in your own life, in your own situation, in your own family, in your own workplace, in your own school, in your own relationships, that you can find creative ways to give. But I'm just going to list just a few to kind of get the idea, the, the snowball rolling in your head. We can give time. You only have a limited amount of it. So to give it is a massive gift. We can give effort, attention, forgiveness. We can give compassion. We can give understanding. We can give the truth. In some instances, we can give a second chance. We can give love. Matt, those things are requiring something directly from me. Yes. Yes, they are. Why in the world should you be interested in giving time, effort, attention, forgiveness, compassion, understanding truth, a second chance, or love? Because, my friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, all of those things have been already given to you. God patiently waited for me to return to Him when I spit in His face and walked away. The effort of people to reach out to me as the Holy Spirit prompted them to say, Matt, come and talk to me about the gospel and about where your life is at this moment. The, the attention that he gave me on the night that I rededicated and gave my life back to the Lord. The forgiveness for willful disobedience, the compassion to wipe those sins away, the understanding to know that I am a flawed human in need of a Savior Him being the way, the truth, and the life. He gave me more than a second chance, more than a third chance. He gave me love. And if we are His children and we are to reflect Him as Christ ambassadors to this world, my friends, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the things that we're supposed to be giving to others.
It's going to be wildly inconvenient. It's going to make you late for a meeting. It might take up the first 20 minutes of date night. It might mean that your kids are late to a basketball practice or a baseball game. But I guarantee you that the impression made from those around you who are watching you operate in God's love will have a far greater impact than the small, temporary, physical inconvenience. Let us be people who find creative ways to give. When we talk about giving everything, I'm not talking about foolishness or or, or doing things that are just that, that, that don't make sense. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about releasing the grip on the things that we don't want to give. You may be like, man, time, effort, attention, I'm good, but ooh, a second chance? I don't do that well. I might be good with a second chance, but man, giving compassion, something I got burned on. If you are someone who has been burned because you have given to someone else and they have abused that gift, let me be the first to tell you I'm sorry. It's crazy when people who are not believers act in this way and hurt us, but it's even worse when people who call themselves believers or even church leaders or pastors or teachers or whatever... They claim to follow Christ, and those guys hurt us when we give. It can, it can tempt us to be in a position to say, I am never doing that again. But when we say, I'm never doing that again, what we are saying is, God, I don't want to follow your example anymore. I know you have laid out for me to give and to find that my heart should be full and over, overflowing with love for other people, but I've got a wound here. I've got a scar here that is too painful for me to deal with. And when we talk about giving everything before we can give everything to other people, you're going to have to reconcile and give everything to God. Giving everything to God means I'm not holding anything back from Him. Giving everything to God also means giving up anything that stands in between us and Him. I don't like the guidelines of decency and morality you played, laid out in Scripture, God. But is He worth more than that? Yes. The people you told me to give to hurt me. The people who, who you told me to, that I, I was all in. I was all in financially. I was all in on my heart. I was all in emotionally. I was all in mentally. I gave and gave and gave. And they wound up abusing me in that pure heart of giving. My friends, you're not alone because I bear those scars with you. But I am imploring you not to let the temporary mistake and action here on earth impact your eternity. Because giving everything to others requires us to give everything to God. Why would I do that, Matt? Psalms 107.9 God satisfies the longing soul. 
He fills the hungry soul with goodness. My friend, the thing that you're looking for, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, every other thing in life that is away from God fills, but it never fulfills. But He satisfies the longing soul. And He fills and fulfills the hungry soul with goodness. Giving God everything implies there's nothing left between you and Him. It means I'm going to give up every hurt, every desire, everything that stands in between me and you and causes this gulf. I'm going to give it all up until there's nothing left between me and you. And the more you give up, it seems that the word give up means lose. But my friends, the more you give up, the more love that you experience. And the more Psalms 107, 9 becomes true, He satisfies the longing soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Why in the world take the time to talk about giving everything to God and then so we can in turn give everything to others? Why am I going to be pouring out of myself to other people? Because simply two words, love gives.